Christ Community Church is called by the God of all grace for the transforming of life in Middle Tennessee, spiritually, socially, and culturally. Through the power of the gospel, from Franklin to the nations of the world, all for the glory of God. For more information, visit ChristCommunity.org. I'm Pastor Randy Lovelace, and I'm the new lead pastor here as of about seven weeks ago here at Christ Community Church, and today is the culmination of a lot of prayers, a lot of work, and uh, this morning I am deeply, deeply honored uh, by those who are here, and I'm specifically honored to have uh, here Scotty Smith, who has taught me how to pray. I'm greatly honored to have Pastor Kevin Twitt here, who's taught me how to worship, and it is my distinct uh, honor to introduce to you Dr. Brian Chapel. There are many accolades which I could number. He is the stated clerk of our denomination, which means he's the head administrator. He makes sure all things are done right and in order, which means for a denomination, he's the chief chaos officer. And he is new to that role, and it requires re-election each year, so it is not an easy job. But before that, he was a pastor. And after serving in the pastorate, he would become professor of homiletics where I first met him, and he was the primary reason I went to Covenant Seminary, was to learn under him. So if you don't like my preaching, don't blame him. (laughs) But I learned much from him. And he would become president of Covenant Seminary, and after uh, a long stint as president of Covenant Seminary, he would go back to the pastorate. But there are many things I could say, but I would most want you to know this. He did teach me how to be a pastor and not just to preach. He taught me how to be a pastor and a scholar. And there are many words and phrases which those of us who studied under him remember, and they still hold today as key parts of my philosophy of ministry. So I'm grateful to have him here to bring the word of God on this important day for me and Kate and Caroline. And so I want to welcome and introduce to you Dr. Brian Chapman. Thank you, Randy. You're you're getting a good guy and a wonderful family for whom I am very thankful. I'm going to ask as we begin this day that you would look in your Bibles at Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, as we'll consider, focusing on verses 11 to 24, but I'll range a bit broader than that as we go. Randy and I will be aware that a generation ago, one of the popular series among preachers was a a published series every year that was called, If I Had Only One Sermon to Preach, which was a way for the celebrated preachers of the day to show their pulpit prowess by dragging out their best effort and wowing people with it. But what if you changed it just a little bit and you said, what what if I had only one sermon left to preach? Of all the years and all this, if I had only one sermon left to preach. You know that whatever you chose would reveal something about your priorities and your heart. You might even ask, well, what would Jesus preach? We don't have to guess about that. 
in the very last public sermon before he would go to Jerusalem and the cross. This is what Jesus preached to show the priorities of his heart. Verse 11 of Luke 15, and he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let's eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Father, help us to celebrate your grace too, that our thanksgiving might be the mark of our faith in who you are and your love toward us, driving out the darkness of the world with understanding of how great is the love of an eternal Father for people such as we. Grant this, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. We'll have our grandchildren visit with us this coming week. We have six grandkids, all under the age of six, which means there's some bedlam (laughs) when Thanksgiving occurs. The kids get excited. They sometimes get overexcited, which means occasionally somebody will need a timeout, especially grandma and grandpa will need a timeout. (laughs) And when I see all the hustle and bustle, I think of my children, their parents at that age, particularly our two sons, when they were preschoolers, three and five, about the same age as our grandchildren now, you know, one of the things that I would do to try to settle them after dinner is we would always go to the living room and I'd have a wrestling match with my two sons. My wife did always not agree with this particular approach to settling them down, but we had fun doing it. When my sons were three and five, the three-year-old always got the worst of it because, of course, he was not as strong as his older brother. But he discovered the great equalizer. It's called teeth. (laughs) 
He would bite and he would bite hard. And of course, then, you know, he'd be disciplined and the game would be over and we would be done. One, one night we were wrestling and he got so excited, he bit me. I mean, he bit me hard. And, you know, I said, well, we are done. And young man, off to bed. You know, no questions, no conversation, no amount of tears is going to undo this. Off you go. Now, I must tell you that I am sure that that three-year-old slept just fine that night. But not this child of God. Because I recognize that all my son knew at the end of that day was my anger. And it kept me up. And so I did, dads, you know what I did. At some point, I go into his bedroom. Late at night, here's this sleeping child, you know. And I pick him up, that limp body in my arms, and I say, Jordan, I'm sorry. And I love you. And in my own mind's eye, I actually imagine that's what the Heavenly Father is doing with this child in the very same moment. He's holding up this weak child of God, and he's saying, I love you. And I won't let you go. Even as I'm saying, Father, I didn't represent you very well this day. I'm sorry. And I love you too. Is it just sentiment or is there something in the scriptures that assures us of a God who who loves us in our weakness and our sin and will not let us go? We don't really have to question so much. After all, Jesus in this very last of the sermons of his public ministry tells three accounts of losses. I just read to you about the prodigal son, but you recognize, I think many of you prior to that, he tells a story of lost sheep and then a lost coin and finally a lost son. And what he's doing is he's, he's facing the people that he has to reach with this, this last opportunity to share the gospel. And, and what he's speaking to is people who are angry and anxious some who are so hopeful in who he's going to be, some who've already lost hope, some who are cross with him and others who will demand the cross for him. He's got to reach them all. So how does he do that? He tells the story first of of a lost sheep. And you know, a a sheep is lost, not, not because... It makes a great show and goes into great rebellion. I mean, if a sheep is lost, it's, it just kind of wanders away. It goes from clump of grass to clump of grass without any real intent. And then just after a while, it's just gone. And some of us think of our children who never made any great show, never really rebelled, but somehow they were more silent and then more distant and then just gone. Or those of you leaders in the church, you recognize how it is when people come excited into the house of God and you have those those front row believers who are so excited about the things, but something happens, a disappointment, a difficulty, and they kind of move steadily to the middle and then the back and you don't see them every week and you know, a year or two down the road, you're in some session meeting or leadership meeting in the church, and somebody says, you know, whatever happened to, 
and, and nobody really knows. They, they just kind of wandered away. Certain people, of course, are like lost coins. Now, if a coin is lost, one of the things you know for sure is it's lost through no fault of its own. It, it didn't intend to be lost. Somebody else neglected or misplaced it. And in the church, we often recognize our lost coins are the, the children of the church that are not to the advantage of anybody in the church to take care of. And so they're just neglected and eventually gone. I think of it in terms of my, my own experience. Um, when I began pastoring, I was in one of the poorest presbyteries of this denomination, Presbyterian Church in America, and we were so poor that the small rural churches of that presbytery, when we had summer camp, we, we didn't, you know, go to an expensive camp and hire counselors for our kids. I mean, there wasn't money for that. And so the dumbest thing, but necessary thing that we did is we made the pastors the counselors at summer camp. Crazy. But it was a way to get to know kids. And I remember one particular young woman who came from a terrible family background. But, but in that week at summer camp, she came alive in Jesus. I mean, she, she recognized the love of a Savior who would give himself for her despite the wretchedness of her background and her past, that, that there was someone who would love her and care for her eternally. And just, just watched her blossom and joy. Well, as happens, some of you know, in kind of small rural town settings, even though she was not in my town or my church, uh, I drove to her town some weeks after summer camp just to see how she was doing, if her walk with the Lord was still good. And I learned in that little visit that she was planning on working at a place that coming school year that would expose her to the worst of society and the worst of men. I begged her not to do it. And she said, Pastor Brian, I'll be okay. And then words more true than she knew. My parents don't care. They really did not care. I did not see her again for a few years and then just happened in a grocery store to come up in a line behind her as she stood at the cashier. She recognized me, I recognized her, kinda. By that point, she was in her early 20s. She looked as though she was in her early 40s. Her beauty turned brassy, already in and out of one marriage, used and abused by men. Fake smile, fake stories and I knew I was looking at a lost coin. Finally, Jesus talks about lost children. This is the hardest for us to read, and yet, curiously, it's the one he spends the most time on. There was a man who had two sons, and one of them says, Father, give me my inheritance now, which is the equivalent of saying in this society, I would just assume you were dead so that I could get my money now. And we recognize this is not wandering, and this is not neglect. This is willful, deliberate rebellion. 
This son knows what he's doing and he is going to turn his back on family and faith and go his own way. And we understand it. He, he goes and we read that he spent everything in verse 14. And that's, that's kind of the gentle story. He spent everything. His older brother, who will begrudge his father's welcome a bit later, actually says what the money was spent on, not just reckless living, he spent it on prostitutes. And then more degradation. He makes his living among the pigs, unclean to a Jewish ceremonial society. And he's so destitute he wants to eat the food of pigs. And we parents have trouble even thinking about what it would mean in our own families. That somebody we love and have given ourselves for would abandon faith and family and turn their backs on us and insult us and hurt us. I can think in my own extended family of an adopted child taken from the streets, taken from a drug-addicted mother and raised in a wonderful Christian home. Hated school. And when he graduated from high school, decided the way he could make his living, not having to have any more school, was he would go to the casinos of Mobile and he would become wealthy as a gambler. And when the money ran out, the way he made money was by selling himself. So much pain. So much embarrassment, so longing for him to turn directions and not seeing it happen, it just hurts so bad. And yet Jesus points this way, and he says, even for such a child is the love of God. And we would have trouble mustering it, and yet he says, God, the creator of the universe, the righteous, holy God, whom the angels even declare, holy, 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 that same God loves such children. And we gain some insight into his heart in seeing how that message of Jesus is characterized in each of these parables of lostness. Verse 5 says what happens when the shepherd finds the lost sheep. Verse 5, when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Randy mentioned that I taught seminary for a number of years, still do it occasionally, and I can remember an occasion in which some father brought his little three-year-old daughter to class. I don't know what it was that he brought a, a three-year-old to a theology class. Probably mom was expecting the next child, and so, you know, at doctor's appointment, he brings his daughter, and, and uh, you know, they're in the theology class. You know, the daughter kind of made it because the father had brought in his knapsack, along with the theology books, the doll and the blanket and the sweater and of course, the mandatory cup of Cheerios. You know, keep occupied. And it almost worked. I mean, right up until the class was over, and then in that rush to get everything ready to go to the next class, you know, into the knapsack, go to the theology books and the blanket and the sweater and the doll, and then just kind of scooping things up, he missed grabbing the Cheerios cup, smacked it, and it went all the way across the lecture hall floor. And the father, you know, suddenly, I got to get all the Cheerios. Get to, you know, he, he just absentmindedly, he handed this knapsack 
full of theology books and the doll and the blanket and the sweat. He handed it to his daughter. He said, honey, hold this. And he went for the Cheerios. And, and she felt it for just a half second. He said, oh, daddy, I can't, you. And then he put the burden on his own shoulders and rescued her. And then we read, when the shepherd found the lost sheep, he laid it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Our Savior, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, bearing its burden for you and me. He rejoiced to do it. How I need that message at time when my wandering makes me think I could never go back to say he actually rejoices for me to come back. And the lost coin, by whatever neglect, whatever difficulty, verse 9, when she found it, the woman who had lost it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I've lost. Rejoice for one to understand, come back, be a part of things. I went into the kitchen some days after the biting incident, and my wife was uh, dewy-eyed and teary. And I, I came to immediately the wrong conclusion. I said, all right, what did he do now? <laughs> and she said, well, no, it's not that. She said, look. And she pointed out the back window to our patio where there's a picnic table, and my two sons had taken their lunch, and they had gone to the picnic table, and for whatever reason, they had gone under the picnic table, but before they ate, they were praying. And I, as a parent, rejoiced to see a child embrace the faith at whatever age. And Jesus rejoices to see us, though neglected, though abused, though misunderstood, to claim him again. Jesus rejoices. Even if the child is one who has absolutely rebelled against the love of the father. I mean, to think about what this son has done. To, to, to wish his father's death. To, to want material gain more than any being part of the family or being part of the faith. For that son to return. What, what, what would be the attitude of you as a parent to such a child? One of the most beautiful verses in all the Bible is verse 20. And when the son arose and came to his father, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. You know, the son hasn't even given his well-rehearsed speech yet. You know, well, dad, I'm sorry. Treat me like one of your... He hasn't said any of that yet. The reports have already come back of his reckless living, of his abandonment, of, and yet the father sees his son, not near, no, a long way off. And the father runs to him. I mean, we, we don't have enough Jewish background to actually put the picture in our brains. I mean, if this is an aristocratic, wealthy Jewish father, you have to put the picture in your brain. I mean, if he's wealthy, he can probably afford the sumptuous food of the times. 
he maybe is a little bit heavy with age, and he sees his son, and he begins to run. Do, do you get it? I mean, he's got the turban on his head. He's got the long robe, except to run, you have to kind of pull it up between your legs and stick it in your belt so his knobby old knees show. And the necklaces are bouncing on his chest, and the sandals are flopping on his feet. And as he runs, his heart begins to race, and his breath to heave, and his sweat to drip off of him, and he's running. But what's more amazing, of course, is Jesus is actually representing the love of God the Father in this father, who is humiliating himself for the sake of this child, his child, whom he loves. It's an amazing picture given for us to recognize however far we've gone, however distant we are, however bad the rebellion, that we have a father who rejoices to receive us more than that who would run to us to claim us again. Some of us will know the name Charles Hodge, and we think only of the theologian, we don't think of the poet, who would actually say, the fattened calf, the shoes, the robe, the ring, all for him, unworthy son. But sweeter still, the most amazing thing, God, ran to meet him. We see God run. It's the blessing of the gospel of grace for all who know there's no reason that God should love us or care for us or send his son to die for us. But the message of scripture from the beginning to the end is of a God who's always coming closer, coming closer to those who rebel and turn and insult and hurt him. He is still willing to humiliate himself, even to send his son for us so that we, when we have turned from the far country and wonder if there are any left, left for us, would say, oh, goodness, there is. I've seen God run to people like me. Praise God for his goodness. Randy, I know you're not thinking about the last sermon you're gonna preach. You're thinking about the first sermon you're gonna preach. But if they would show your priorities at all, Make sure that what your people know is of a God who would run to meet them. Regardless of the past, the difficulty, the sin, the rebellion. A God who still rejoices to call them his child and will not let them go. The fattened calf, the shoes, the robes, the ring, all all for him unworthy son. But sweeter still, the most amazing thing. God ran to meet him. We see God run. Show them. It's a beautiful sight. God runs to meet us. What amazing grace. Father, I praise you for the work of your son and the beauty of our opportunity to proclaim it and claim it. Those of us who recognize we in some measure are all lost sheep, and lost coins, and lost children. But you rejoice to receive us, to call us back and claim us again, and you won't let us go. Thank you for the grace and the goodness that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. 
We pray to you with thanksgiving. In his name, amen.